Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined this week by Jeremy Goldhorn, the man behind Danway.com, back in Beijing this week. How are you, and how's it feel to be back, man? It's great. I've been gorging myself on Beijing's finest cuisine, ah. <laughs> something I miss quite a lot in Tennessee. <laughs> I can imagine. So, so just give me two two restaurants that you've, you've eaten at. What was it, like the first place you had to rush off to? Well, I, I'm staying right around the corner from Yusin, which is a, ah, a very nice uh, Sichuan, Sichuan restaurant. And then aside from that, it's been hole in the wall. <laughs> ah, awesome, awesome. Have you tried that 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 uh, that Shaisimian place directly across from Yusin? No. Make sure to try that. It's right. pretty amazing. Uh, so with the recent revival of rather old school and seemingly doctrinaire language that we're hearing emanating from Beijing in recent months, and of course, with the 50th anniversary of the great proletarian cultural revolution coming up very shortly, many people have begun taking a keen interest in Mao Zedong, in good old Chairman Mao, whose highly ambivalent and very problematic legacy still looms quite large over China. So today we are joined by Jude Blanchett, who was formerly Assistant Director of the 21st Century China Program of the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego, and now works for the Conference Board. Let me add here that the views expressed by Jude here today do not represent or necessarily represent those of the Conference Board. So he's currently writing a book on Neo-Maoism, on which I can't imagine the Conference board has an opinion, but uh, he's graciously accepted our invitation to come in and chat about Mao and the Neo-Maoists. So Jude, welcome to Seneca, man. Thank you, Kaiser. Thank you, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, um, let me interrupt with a couple of items of, of uh, sort of housekeeping stuff. I, I got to make a couple of announcements before we get into this very, very interesting conversation. First up, the Bookworm Literary Festival is coming up later in March uh, here in Beijing, of course. I wanted to alert people to a couple of my picks for events during the festival that I think are going to be of particular interest to cynical listeners. One, uh, it will be um, kind of a double billing of David ben- David Bandersky, um, who, of course, is a researcher at the China Media Project in, down in Hong Kong. He's going to be talking about his new book, Dragons in Diamond Village, which looks at the phenomenon of urban villages. Anyway, the talk will be moderated by Josh Chin, who is, of course, uh, an old friend of ours. Uh, it's based on a lot of uh, research that... that, that um, was done in Shenzhen and a number of other Chinese cities. So right after that, actually, so that I think is at, at 2 p.m. on March 13th, March 13th at 2 p.m. Right after that, David's going to do another session where he's going to be joining our former guest, Raymond Zhou, Zhou uh to talk about journalism with Chinese characteristics, uh, something which perhaps is especially salient right now as, you know, where the media is under increased scrutiny here in China. Uh, on Monday, the 14th at 1 p.m., Arthur Krober, uh, we'll be chatting with the FT's Lucy Hornby. They've both, of course, been guests on our show about China's economy. Uh, that one you will not want to miss if you've been uh, keen on hearing a very important 
informed and sensible take on what is actually happening here in in China uh, with the economy. Uh, I guess on March 19th at 12 noon, I should add that I'm going to be actually on a panel with Edmund Lococo, who's a former Bloomberg tech reporter here in Beijing. He recently went over to the dark side. Uh, And by Christina Larson, who's science reporter extraordinaire and frequent guest on our program, to talk about innovation in China. And that is going to be moderated by, uh, again, by Josh Chin from the Wall Street Journal, who I guess is going to be equally busy. And then we are taping, drumroll please, a special uh, live edition of Seneca from the Bookworm Literary Festival, where David Moser and I will be talking to Melinda Liu. Uh, Melinda, who we've never actually had on the show, we've tried many times, but she's always, the stars never lie. Finally, longtime bureau chief for Newsweek and now the Daily Beast here in Beijing. We're going to be talking about the Cultural Revolution uh, in in. I wouldn't say honor of, in observance of the 50th anniversary of the beginning of that fucking travesty. And last but not least, on May 27th, the last day of the festival, I will be playing Quizmaster in the Bookworm Literary Quiz, well, Literature Quiz, which uh, was a ton of fun last year, actually, and promises to be no less interesting again this time around. That will begin at 8 p.m. and is going to be free on that's, that's March, tw- March 27th. Uh, all the other events, I believe, are 50 yuan. Uh, details are on... Uh, the site at uh, bookwormfestival, all one word, dot com. So on to the show. Jude, let's let's start off with getting some definitions straight. How about Jeremy? What do you think? Uh, who who are these neo Mao? What what is neo Maoism, and who are we including in this movement? And what's a useful taxonomy? And may, maybe who aren't we including? Are we including the so called new left? Uh- yeah, so I think in in popular discourse now, when we talk about the neo Maoists, we're essentially talking about a um, a phenomenon of the past fifteen or sixteen years, sort of since two thousand one entrance of the WTO, the internet, whatnot, which we can get to later. But that's in in normal media discourse, that's who uh, people are referring to. Um, that's that's a good enough definition for uh, uh, newspaper articles. But I think when we're really talking in a meaningful sense of what is neo uh, Maoism, we need to to pull back the lens a little bit and and rewind the phenomenon. Uh, back at least 20, 25 years uh, to the post-92 Southern Tour uh, period. Post-92 Southern Tour, I mean, I thought, wasn't that the moment of triumph of of neoliberalism? (laughs) Yeah, I I think the the way to think about it is twofold. Um, That's that's an okay narrative, and that generally gets, I think, the, the picture right. If we were to compare China in 76 and China today, that's probably what it looks like from a real 35,000 foot perspective. The problem is, um, that 35,000-foot perspective uh, uh, overlooks so much of what's important and what it leads up to this resurgence of Maoism today. So I think maybe just, just what I'll do briefly uh, to help set the scene is uh, just wind back the clock three decades because that's really when this all kicks off. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I should say four decades. Um, the moment that you had movement on the economic reform agenda is the moment you saw pushback. And that pushback continued until it became a movement. And the movement was, um, it was sort of shunted to the side with various degrees of success, but it was never eradicated. So when I first started getting interested in neo-Maoism around the time of, of Boisilai, and I started to pull the thread for, 
till I could get to the beginning of it, I kept pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling until I got to basically 1978, hmm. to, to the economic reforms. So, so a discussion of neo-Maoism that starts in 09 or 010 or 2011, um, of course it will seem bizarre that these guys came out of nowhere. When you look at it from the lens of 40 years, what we've seen over the past sort of five or six years is just the continuation of a long conversation. So um, when, we, when you define neo-Maoism, um, I mean, uh, who, who are we talking about exactly? Um, you know, who would you define as a neo-Maoist you know, in the 80s? Um, and who are we talking about in the last decade? Yeah, so uh, just to, I think the, the easiest way to understand this, because as with any, um, to some extent, fringe political movement, there's a, a narcissism of small differences and if you get leftists in a room together, you're going to find so many gradations of leftism that it becomes confusing. But I think for, for our story, what we can really say is in the, the decade after the 78 reforms, right? So December 1978 is the third plenum. That's when the big reform and opening package is unveiled. Um, opposition in the ensuing 10 years was what we'd call the conservatives. So these are, pe these are people like uh, Chun Yun. These are people like Hu Chaomu. These are people like Deng Lichun. So these are people who'd spent 50-odd years fighting for this revolution. Mm -hmm. And they were very rapidly seeing the dismantling of the state-owned economy, the, the reintroduction of what they call sort of bourgeois liberalism, spiritual pollution, things that they'd f literally fought for um, were being suddenly eradicated. So the, the pushback was a conservative pushback to conserve the institutions of the state-owned economy for that first decade. Sure, but then they didn't have any champions, certainly not within the Central Committee, and certainly not within the Politburo by the, say, end of the, the 90s then. Right, and this is where your the flat narrative which you gave at the beginning of, you know, the, the rise of Dung, the triumph of the economic reforms, it overlooks what was always uh, relatively intense uh, opposition. And I think the sort of the post-89 period, the, re the years right after that are, are a really good uh, example of that. And that's where we see the blossoming of what was intra-party opposition move out to society in that period right after 89. So the narrative of Deng Xiaoping's Southern Tour, and if we can just do a, a quick uh, potted history here, you have 89. It's, a, it's a, a punch in the gut to the reformers because it's proving everything the conservatives were saying. You see, if you get this market, if you allow blue jeans, if you allow Coke, you, you, you get this spiritual pollution that will infect the young people. And Deng Lichun has a quote, something to that effect. Mm -hmm. um, so so Deng, Deng Xiaoping's prestige it just— was Wranglers, though, in Pepsi. <laughs> right, sorry. Right, right. No, I'm, I'm Deng, Deng Xiaoping's prestige just, just falls off rapidly in that period after, after 89. And that's where you had this Mao craze, which begun in 91, 92. You've got people flocking down to Shaoshan, which is Mao Zedong's ho hometown. Um, so even if we look at the, the 92 Southern Tour, which was this triumphalist, you know, Deng leaves Beijing, goes down to the south and whips up support. That wasn't reported in any of the newspapers in Beijing for two, you know, I think till the end of March. His trip ends in, in late February. It's not even reported mm -hmm. to the end of March. Why? Because about half the standing committee was made up of Chun Yun and his, his conservatives. Um, but again, I think for our discussion, that's really, that's elite politics. And that's not where it get, really gets interesting. It's this next phase. And those, I mean, they're not really neo-Maoists. They're those old are the Maoists. Old Maoists. Those are the con we can call those people conservatives. Okay. Right. 
So what about the bunch now? I mean, what, what do they want? I mean, what are they exactly after? They they want to turn the clocks back? Are these guys, you know, are, are they uh, are they Salafists? Are they purists? Are they, you know, um, wanting to reintroduce the people's communes? And A, a very uh, imprecise analogy, but one that I find myself constantly returning to is, is thinking of the neo-Maoists as sort of China's tea party. Except above the conservative right, it's the it's of the the, the far left because there's a lot of parallels. So, so Sanders, no, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of parallels in in terms of the the imagery that they adopt, the tactics they adopt, um, the fact that they are both uh, astroturf and to some extent it's an organ it's an organic movement. You see similar overlays with with the Maoist movement. So if we were to I think succinctly in an elevator describe what the neo Maoists are. Uh-huh. Um, it's not a matter of nostalgia in the sense of really wanting to go back to 1966 or 56. Any more than the Tea Party. Any more than the Tea Party wants to return to. If you see a guy in a Tom, uh, George Washington costume, he doesn't literally want to go back to 1776. What he's doing is he's adopting the, the best tool one has in an asymmetrical warfare with, with power to affect change, right? So, Which is what? Mythology. Which is state mythology, right? So in the same way with a capital F, we've got the Founding Fathers, which I'm sure you've seen. You've, you've now imbibed some of that in, in uh, Tennessee. I have indeed. <laughs> um, the, Mao is Jefferson here. So if you were to... Weezy um, um, or George? <laughs> if, if you were to look at w- what weapon, what uh, political uh, weapon would you use um, to attack uh, policy in the United States, one of the most effective ways is to wrap yourself in... I'm mixing my metaphors here, but wrap yourself in the flag of the founding fathers. Make it sound as if you're the real founding father. You're the inheritor of their legacy, right? Because that is the way that the, the country was founded by these individuals and the discourse was, was primarily constructed around that. The same thing occurs here. If you are of the disaffected left, if you're of the powerless, whether it's labor, uh, activists, what symbols will have the most uh, impact? And of course, it's Mao. Right. And and who who are these people exactly? And when exactly did this 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 current movement start? Yeah. Sorry. The only reason I'm hesitating to answer that question is you can really get in the weeds of of this network. Um, but like the major ones, are we I'll, talking I'll Utopia? Okay. Let you if you go to. So <laughs> let me start with the one I think most people know about because that was my entry into this discussion. That's Utopia, right? And and, and Jeremy, oh, you followed quite a bit about the Utopia's yeah. vicissitudes. Right? Yeah, absolutely. But go go ahead, Jude. The, the and Utopia is how this book idea started with just understanding Utopia, and of course, as these things do, it, it built and built and built. The but Chinese you, name of the of Utopia, uh, Wuyo Zhixiang. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a, a Wu Tuobang is how you say utopia in Chinese. And, and so this is a, a play on that. Um, so the utopia that I think most of us know uh, came out of this 2011 uh, feud with a guy named Mao Yushu, who'd written an uh, uh, article criticizing Mao Zedong pretty vehemently. Okay, so Mao Yushu, for people who don't know, he's a very, now he's now in octo, oh no, he's an 85. I think. Eight, no, he's, is he close to 90? Okay, 85. 85 or 86. All right, yeah, uh, an older guy, an economist. Um, has some pretty radical ideas. For example, he, he uh, does not believe in Chinese food security, believes that China should import a, 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 a significant proportion of its food needs. But he's also one of the most rapidly outspoken. I, I don't hesitate to call him kind of a neoliberal opponent of. Right, okay. So we know who this guy is, right? Everyone? Uh, so after he writes this article, this, uh, what I can only say is campaign, uh, Culture Revolution style campaign. Um, organized by Utopia springs up around the country where you have these criticism sessions with banners saying, take down the, the, the uh, Hanjian, I don't know if you'd say race trader, but take down the traitor uh, of, uh, of Mao Yushur. 
Um, so that's how I originally initially got interested in understanding what is this group because it my understanding of China at that point was capitalism, WTO, nobody believes in communism anymore. And then you saw this rabid group of, mm-hmm. uh, of communists. Um, so Utopia started in, in 2003, um, and that's not an accident that it was 2003. A lot of the neo-Maoist movement started that year. What um, was significant about 2003 then? If, if you think about that as being the, the, the one, end, one bookend, uh, and sort of 98, 97 being the other, you had a whole series of events which if you're someone who believes in socialism and socialist institutions, you'd feel very unnerved. You had the SOE privatization under under Zhu Rongji. You had the uh, U.S. bombing of, of uh, NATO bombing of the M- embassy in Belgrade. Um, you had yeah. in 99. You had beginning around that period negotiations and then finally entrance into the WTO in, in 2001. You had the Sangha Daibia, which allowed capitalists into the CCP. And for some of these people, the final straw was uh, the shuttering of two really important leftist journals um, that uh, had for about 10 years since the, the post-89 period been one of the primary uh, vehicles for voices of the, of the far left. Um, ordinarily, I think if this had happened 10 years earlier, that might have been the end of the story. But something else was happening around 2002, 2003, which, which Kaiser knows very well. This is when the internet uh, started to be uh, uh, adopted. Jeremy knows it as well. He started, when did you start? 2003, yeah, Dan Wei was started. Right, right. And it was called Dan Wei because, you know, we right. were neo-Maoists. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, a conversation I had with a group called Mao Flag, which was also started in 2003 by these old cadres who'd been fed up. They said, essentially, they were dispirited at that, about all that was happening, but they had this young guy they knew who said, you know what, there's this internet thing we can try. And as someone has likened it to uh, since, this is the, the new Dadzabao. This mm-hmm. was the new way of speaking truth to power. But uh, unlike how I think many of us in the West, and if you go back and read a lot of the coverage of that time, thought this was going to be this universal acid for eating away at all these you know, end of history ideologies. In fact, it resuscitated the left. Right. And, and yet they have suffered a lot. I mean, they have gone through many ups and downs. The, the, where, 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 where have they congregated besides the Utopia websites, besides, besides uh, Mouth Malti, Yeah, Malflag. Yeah, there's redchina.cn was the other one, right? right. There's a yeah. whole uh, a large constellation of what they call red websites, mm-hmm. which, which, uh, which exist. Um, some of them are fairly visible. There's one called the Red, red Song Society, which to me looks sort of like the Drudge Report of, of Maoist websites. It's sort of an aggregator of, of what's happening in, in the Maoist scene. Um, but there's Xin Gongren is one. There's uh, Zheng Dao, which is run by Han Dechang. Um, it's his commune out, out in, in uh, Hebei. Um, there's Haudashui, which is a education website, but is pushing uh, sort of Maoist education. Um, so I remember when we were talking earlier, you had this sort of t- taxonomy of them. It actually drew on the old Cultural Revolution era taxonomies of Zalfan Pai yeah. and the Baohuang Pai. Can you break that up? So Zalfan is, is to, you know, fuck shit up. The, the, um, to rebel is to right. Rebel, Zalfan Yoli. Zalfan Yoli. Um, it's it's another interesting thing about when you when you begin to pull this thread on on the Maoists, you find that uh, just lumping them together as neo Maoists isn't in, entirely helpful because you see two essentially big splits in the movement. Okay, and that's why I use the taxonomy of the sort of the royalists, the Baohuang Pai and the, the Zalfan Pai. So, uh, b- b- unpack that. So what is the Baohuang Pai? So the Baohuang Pai would be the 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 the, the, the Maoist for who their Mao is is the nationalist Mao. This is a man who. 
within a year of the founding of the PRC, stared down the United States and Korea. This is the Mao who gets the atomic bomb. This is the Mao who humiliates Khrushchev in the swimming pool of Jongnanhai in 58 or 59, whenever the visit was. I don't know how familiar people are with that story. Jeremy, you want to tell that one You're, as our ex- resident explainer? Um, I, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to <laughs> tell that particular story, but okay. I think perhaps Jude could. The, 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 the quick version is um, you have uh, um, And this comes this from point, Lee Jishui. This comes from... Uh, no, this is a celebrated, well-known, well-known okay, story. Okay, right. um, I, I, I encountered it there. So you have, after, after 56, 57, essentially after Khrushchev's secret speech in 56 denouncing Stalin's crime, which, which Mao took personally, um, you have the, the split, the Sino-Soviet split begin. And Mao is now starting to feel his oats. Um, you know, you've you've got uh, the first five year plan is in gear. Um, you know, successfully they've done land reform a couple years earlier. You start finally starting to feel pretty confident. So Khrushchev comes to Beijing, and Mao, who was a a, a, a constant swimmer throughout his life and quite a strong swimmer, had a swimming pool uh, built right next to his compound. And so he insists that his meeting with Khrushchev is held in the swimming pool because he knows Khrushchev can't swim. Uh, and so uh, you have. Mao gracefully gliding around. Uh, you have uh, a Khrushchev, you know, splashing around like a doggy like paddling. a doggly padding. So, um, for the for the royalists, th- that is the Mao, and that's their narrative. It's a it's a uh, Fuchang narrative. It's okay. a uh, this is a guy who ended the century of humiliation. So to to fast forward, and there's much ideological content to them beyond that. That that Mao is a symbol of of so they're uh, they're not necessarily doctrinaire. No, Marx, they are. Marxist. I'm just trying to simplify okay. it to okay. the to the to the real essential bit, and so that's where we get to their relationship, vis-a-vis the, the CCP. The CCP is the only thing standing be- between China and foreign invasion. Invasion that could be via financial markets, capitalism that could be actually a physical invasion. So for them, it's a matter of even if you see the CCP airing, that is still. Uh, the, the CCP is China, is the PRC. It's Mao's, it's Mao's uh, I- great inheritance. And essentially you're loyal to the party above ideology. But So they wouldn't have batted an eye when, when Bo Xilai went down. Uh, they, they, their, their loyalties weren't then... It, yeah, it's a little bit complicated, but okay. sure, if we want to flatten the narrative a little bit, sure, yeah, I think we can, we can say that it's, it's uh, the CCP above all. Then we've got something called the the Zalfan Pie. These are the more act- oh, This is your name or their name or other people's names for, for them? Or- uh, this is my way of thinking of this borrowing from the Cultural Revolution. This was the famous split in the Cultural Revolution right, of the I Red, that, red but, Guards. Uh, but do they kind of self-consciously adopt these names? For the- no, no. no. Okay. All right. Just making um, sure that we understand that. Um, so the 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 Zalfan Pai, the rebel faction, are the, these are the activists. These are the people. These are the people who aren't in Beijing, who are in cities like Zhengzhou, Shenyang, cities that were decimated by the SOE reforms. Um, this, that's where they started. And these are the people for whom the CCP has sort of given up its its uh, uh, you know what's it its uh, ideological origins. Its ideological origins, and it can't be saved. So these are the people who I think are much more um, um, activists. These are the people who are. Um, doing underground meetings. They're threatening to the regime. Speaking of underground meetings. So like jinbusher.org, I guess, was one of those. Yeah, Jinbusher They they went on a campaign against Wen Jiabao, accusing him of being a traitor. They actually, so so this, uh, there was a petition going around just before Wen Jiabao stepped down in 2012 that was uh, calling for his uh, sacking. And this is one that was circulating all the red websites and was getting signatures. It's since been scrubbed. But that was a pretty remarkable the rules that I understood of Chinese politics said that shouldn't, or if that happened, that should all those groups should be shut down immediately. Yet they weren't. 
And, and jimbushow.org was the the website that had its logo was a, a, a AK-47 toting panda, which was rather charming. And their, their <laughs> subsidiary website was called Sinu, so Western yeah, no, Slaves. Uh, uh, do you remember? I, I, I featured on Sinu Jeremy with a noose around my neck as a traitor to the Chinese race, which rather which pleased me you, as I didn't realize I was a member of it. But right. um, can uh, can we go back to Boise Lai, the question of Boise Lai? Because um, that changed a lot for many of these websites. Many of them actually closed down. In fact, most of them, as far as I understand, closed down. Can you can you explain what happened to the neo Maoists uh, during the fall of Borsilai, and which of them uh, managed to rise up again uh, after it? The, the um, you know when Borsilai goes to Chongqing, there was a, a, an immediate uh, recognition, I think, by the by the Maoist neo Maoist left that that this was somebody with whom they could they could they could support. Um, they knew they could ride his coattails. And there was a real belief that Bo Xilai, um had a shot of getting into the standing committee. So Utopia started to make uh, pilgrimages out to uh, Chongqing. Sima yeah. uh, Nan, who's affiliated with Utopia, was famously photographed with Wang Lijun. Sima well, Nan, I mean, when we come up with a name, so he is a Bao Wang Pai, right? right? Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, absolutely. Sort of well-known. Uh, debunker of of non scientific claims, right, but uh, kind of but the that's James one hat. James Randi of China, the James Randi of China, right. but also a fervent uh, um, Bao Hong Pai. Yeah. Um, so a, a lot of the red- that unfortunate escalator accident too. Let us not forget. <laughs> a lot of the red websites threw their lot in with with Bo Xilai. Um and this is also the same period you had this campaign against Mao Yushur. So really, a lot of uh, journalists in the West were starting to take notice of this crazy phenomenon that was happening. Um, when the whole Boshilai thing fell apart, um, on the day that they announced his, uh, his loss of his party membership in uh, whenever the Leonghui was in 2012. In March. That same day, all of the red websites, that same day, all of them were shuttered. Um, all of them were closed. And I think for most of us, that was the end of the story. Um, that was clearly the, the center indicating that this, was, this had gone too far. And you remember, Wen Jiabao in that, in that final uh, press conference said we need to worry about a return to the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution being this great almost boogeyman, you know, like a parent telling their kid, you know, go to bed or the Cultural Revolution will come back. It's used by a lot of people a lot of the, a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, it's used to, constantly here. Um, so, so all those websites shut down. I think for everyone that was the end of the story. But something interesting really happened. After shutting down for about six months, um, September 9th is the anniversary of, of Mao's uh, death, which, by the way, is the 40th anniversary this year, September 9th. It's uh, quite a year for anniversaries. Yeah, sure Ten is. minutes after midnight. Um, so uh, on that occasion, Utopia had typically done a big gala, and yet again they do it this year. And at this big gala are Zhang Chunjing, who was the head of the organization uh, department during the uh, 1990s. Uh, Hu Chaomu's daughter, Hu Mu Ying, was mm-hmm, at this mm-hmm. big thing. Who's a, she's a president of something called Children of Yan'an, uh, sort of a, a Hong Ar Dai uh, yeah, organ- so the, organization. The true red royalty. I mean, true red sort royalty. Of, you know, sort, of, sort of still loyal red royalty. Right? So you all of a sudden have, have these organizations c- coming back one by one and slowly. And th- to this day, they still uh, exist. And I, I, this is not a great analogy, but I always sort of think it was like Obi-Wan Kenobi being struck down. Uh, um, um, you, they'll be more powerful, and so they have. They they have in in many ways um, multiplied, become more sophisticated. Their activities have expanded. You know, Utopia was primarily a a, a bookstore with an occasional meeting. Now it's got a very uh, popular uh, website, which is their uh, Wang Khan, their their online uh, news newspaper. Um, they do uh, what's red tourism. So which, they go, which suggests to me that Xi Jinping sees some use in having these people around still. 
Is that, yeah. is that fair to say? Yeah, the big, and this is where maybe I could just quickly re- re- rewind a little bit because the, the, the reason that the left is still a thing in China and the reason that it hasn't gone away is because there's always been this fundamental contradiction for the CCP. It, it preaches socialism and it practices capitalism. And as long as you preach so, so socialism... Um, Mao is useful. Mao is, Mao is useful and is Mao is useful is, both for necessary. the... Necessary for the, for the CCP, but also that provides a, a space for people to the left of the CCP to constantly be entering the conversation. And so uh, Deng, you know, made a decision very early on that he, he couldn't he couldn't entirely do without the left. And there's a if you read the his successive drafts comments on the 1981 resolution, which is the the historical re- resolution, which um, sort of said Mao is pretty bad, but he he did mostly good things. It wasn't the 70-30 resolution, right? Which which an interesting thing uh, I I learned, and I'd always thought that the 70-30 Mao is 70 percent good, 30 percent bad was in the 81 resolution, and it's not. It's not. Um, no, it's not. Um, the the seventy thirty f- uh, formulation was something that had been used often. Mao had used it himself to evaluate Stalin. Uh, Mao had used it again himself to Deng Xiaoping to evaluate his uh, uh, his merits and demerits. He'd used it in uh, evaluating the Cultural Revolution in January of seventy nine at this what's called the Theory Conference. A few people in the uh, in the meeting brought it up as being a way to evaluate the Cultural Revolution. Um, but it was never an official position. It's never in any official document. Huh. But it's been one of these uh, um, things. I think it was quite convenient for us to make sense of it all. I've got to go back and change one of my Quora answers. <laughs> um, so you know, as long as as long as um, part of the the legitimizing narrative is this left socialist narrative, the left will always be uh, an element of the discourse in China, and they've never been able to to eradicate that. So, if we look at Utopia today, I mean, you know, they suffered after the fall of Bo Xilai. Um Have they forgiven the party, and has the party forgiven them? And they are now back, you know, in good uh, graces uh, uh, with the establishment. And I ask also, particularly in the context of um, just uh, a few days ago, the the Weibo, the microblog of Renzi Chang, the real estate billionaire with thirty seven billion follow- followers, who. Is, a million, uh, a million. Sorry, yeah. um, <laughs> and only twenty-two million dollars. Um, uh, he his Weibo account was deleted after he criticized basically Xi Jinping's media campaign uh, to bring the major state uh, media uh, completely under his control. Hard um, to say that was so an just let me finish, Kaiser. Um, so uh, Utopia. Uh, today on their homepage, there were no fewer than 36 stories attacking Renzi Chang. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, have they come back into the fold of the establishment? Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, I was hoping someone would observe that, that it, it's the past day has been entirely about Renzi Chang and, and how he's uh, anti- anti-party. Um, I think two things. I wouldn't take that necessarily as a sign that everybody at Utopia is, is pro C. I would take that as a sign as they don't recognize the right of anyone other than their club to be criticizing uh, the party. So it's anyone who is a historical nihilist, anyone who is a uh, um, uh, flirting with global capitalism, anyone who is a, a, a Western slave, those people do not have the right, as, as far as utopia is concerned, to be making comments other than slavishly pro-party. So it's kind of like we Jews are the only people allowed to tell anti-Semitic <laughs> jokes. Is that... Is that right. <laughs> <okay>. right. <laughs> right. So, I, yeah, so I, 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 I wouldn't take that entirely as a... As a uh, because there is a... Um, 
a few people who are part of this Bao Huang Pai have, has, have subsequently left Utopia. Uh, Zhang Hongliang, who's at uh, Minzu Dashui and is uh, Minorities University and mm-hmm. is one of the most prominent um, um, Bao Huang Pai um, and who was instrumental in moving Utopia from being a more generally pan-leftist organization in about 2008 into an explicitly Maoist organization. He is subsequently broken with Utopia because he thinks they've, they've gone off the rails a little bit. Off the rails in what sense? Um, e- extremism, um, not adhering to the, uh, the Fuxing line, which is Zhang right. Hongliang's nationalist project. Um, not recognizing that she is the greatest instrument for bringing about the revitalization of see, the Chinese nation. So uh, off the rails by being too critical of Xi. Right. That, that, that's very interesting. Where does, uh, where does the new left fit into your taxonomy, the so-called new left? Because I think, that's, I think I'm, I'm worried that a lot of people are lumping them in when I, I personally don't believe they deserve to be. Yeah. The, the, the new left was um, always a distinct movement from what we call uh, neo-Maoism. Um, there was, you know, the, when we think of the the, the uh, most obvious people, the new left, we're primarily thinking of people who were educated abroad. Um, a lot of them, Cui Zhi Yuan, and then who have a distinct mix of uh, social democratic sympathy mm-hmm. um, with a heightened concern about uh, global capitalism. So these are not people. They would say they're they're pro democracy. Um, they're uh, pro-welfare state. Right. Um, they're statist to some extent. They're statist but... certainly to some extent, right? So they've always been they've always been a a shared that the the left space with the Maoists, but they've never been the same uh, the same, the same creature. You Utop- they're they're much more ambivalent about Mao himself. Uh, yeah, although I know Cui Zhi Yuan has written several articles praising the Cultural Revolution uh, legacy um, as being an important example of the people being able to streak, uh, speak truth to power. Um, but in general, yes, I'd say there's people like Wang Hui I know are are, are um, not going to wholesale criticize Mao in the way that someone like Mao Yushu would be, mm-hmm. but have a much more, I think, yeah, ambivalent legacy or ambivalent opinion about the, the Cultural Revolution and Mao. What about um, the um, mainstream appeal of these people? Because, I mean, I can understand that it's a powerful force because in a country that still defines itself as communist, if you are a self-proclaimed communist and a leftist and a Maoist, you know, your voice has a certain, you know, you have a certain authority yeah. to speak. Uh, but is it at all popular? Especially when, you know, that, that, that symbol that is, uh, is being used is still so ubiquitous, right? I mean, it hasn't been invalidated. The, the symbol of Mao? Mao himself, yeah. Right. Yeah, I think um, the, the, the straight answer is we don't know because we have no way of really ass- assessing Because there are no elections. You know, there have been surveys that have yeah. been done. One of the first ones was done by Andrew Nathan in 1990 where they went out and uh, polled on. Basically think of Mao as being the opposite. Pro-Mao is often the opposite of pro-reform. So you can... An answer that is uh, pro-Mao is often just basically saying you're not for the capitalist reforms, which is what Andrew Nathan was uh, uh, measuring in, in 1990. Yeah, see, but I don't believe that that's a, a, a straight-up dichotomy. I mean, totally, a, totally. A perfect dyad at all. Totally. Yeah, I, I, yeah. so the, the problem is this space gets a little bit messy because right. we're not, there's not exactly two So is that something people. you're trying to look at, though, in your book? Uh, is, you know, Jeremy's question about what is the, the broad popular appeal of, of this left? And what's critique? your gut feeling? I mean, no, yeah, no, yeah. no empirical evidence, just what's your gut feeling? I guess I would so no, <laughs> I'm not going to spend time doing that because I, I just don't have the tools and I don't, to, to go out and make any meaningful measure of how much support for... 
so we'd have to make a distinguish. We distinguish between Mao, neo Maoism as a movement and Mao as an individual. But to all you graduate students out there listening, yeah. I mean, this is a very good research topic, isn't it? I mean, uh, and, and, and what explains then the dearth of 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 academic interest in this? I don't see a lot of people, especially in Western academia, writing about this particular topic. You know, I so to. There is some really good research going on right now about okay. ideology in China, and I know sure. you had uh, you did a, an episode on on the paper by uh, Jen Pan and, and Shui Ching. Yeah, and uh, there's a great grad student at UCSD named Jason Wu doing stuff on ideology and trying to better understand, better map out the ideolo- ideological contours, moving beyond simply saying left and right. Right is you are pro-constitutionalism and pro-capitalism left as you're a socialist. Right. Uh, because maybe that's not the right State way to define left and right, 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 not the best way to define left and right in China. Um, I just, to quickly return to, to Jeremy's question, um, A, I don't know, but um, my but, sense right. is it's always been a, uh, support for Mao has always been a, a, a um, side effect of dissatisfaction with the direction of China. And so you've seen uh, waves of this come and go where uh, low points in the belief and faith in the direction of China, that China is going, you see an upsurge in Ma- Mao nostalgia or, or pro-Maoism. Um, and I think your Tea Party analogy. Exactly. Right. And I think this is where the, the forget Boishe Lai for a minute. I, I think one of the interesting things that took me by surprise and a lot of people was just how organically popular this singing red nostalgic campaign was and i there was certainly an element of astroturfing to it or or promotion by by the ccp but that doesn't to me explain most of what what was happening then i really think there was it a tapped into something tapped that was into real something and organic. because the other thing is there is no right as a movement in china that resonates with anybody and i think we get all excited when we find some of these individuals who um closely map what what we want. And I think these people are important. I'm not saying that at all. I think what they're doing is amazing. But I think if we were to... A stunning stunning admission from an imperialist such as you. I think if we were to go out and, and have the ability to... Uh, see if people are sympathetic with a with a quote unquote rightist agenda. Uh, I think we'd find much less support once we get out of. And this is what the you know Jen Pan Shui Ching thing essentially said is when you move inter, inland, you find more conservatism. Right, um, just like in America. <laughs> well, yeah, and for similar reasons, poorer people, people more threatened by change. Right? So, we, we've talked a lot about on this show about how interpretation of history is is really one of the main preoccupations of politics here in China. It's it's, it's all, I mean the place just abounds in contested narratives and um, you know in fact we're going to be speaking with a blogger Ma Tianjie uh, pretty soon uh, about among other things that excellent essay that he wrote about um, historical nihilism. Uh, you brought up the phrase historical nihilism not not not, not ten minutes ago. Um, let's let's talk about how that idea has entered into the ongoing debates between it among the, these different neo-Maoist factions and their detractors both within the establishment and, and also on the non-establishment right insofar as it exists at all. Um, I mean, with regard to like Yehuang Chunqiu, there's, a, a, there's that piece that attacks the, the mythology of the five heroes of, of Wolf Tooth Mountain of, uh, of, or Langyang Langyangshan. Um, Jeremy, I turn to the explainer, Yenhuang Chunxiu, in, in 30 seconds or less. Um, a magazine uh, run by a bunch of um, old uh, <laughs> people who favor liberal policies. Okay, <laughs> And uh, right. usually stay out of trouble, but not always. Yeah. Yang Jishang, who wrote the book Tombstone, is one of the editors right. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, so this is, this is um, I think, so interesting that I'm devoting an entire chapter to it. Essentially, there's a lawsuit, um, which the appeal, by the way, which I'll get to in a minute, was, was uh, just announced today. Oh. Um, wow. on, on the blog of, of one of the uh, important people in, in this. But, um, Today is March 1st, by the way, the day of the taping, so that's why, you know, if you... If, if, if or just wait and read my book, and I'll tell you about it. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, you know, I think a lot of people have seen this phrase, hi- historical nihilism, come up repeatedly, and, and if you do keyword searches of, of people's daily, you see it didn't exist in, in five years ago, and now you're seeing it quite a lot. You're seeing stuff come out of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. You're, you're really seeing a big official push on this. And um, the, what essentially, I think, if we if we want to define historical nihilism as it's used in the popular narrative now, it's basically if you Denying have a the party line on history. If you don't tell the party line on history, you're a historical nihilist. If you right. have an independent reading of 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 what happened in China's revolutionary past, so in November 2013, uh, and I'm going to try not to. I'm going to skip over a lot of these details uh, because it takes too long, but. Yan Hong Chun Cho uh, published an article uh, on the five heroes of Longyao Mountain, um, which is a, a battle in, in 1941 during the, the uh, Sino-Japanese War. These five heroes of the 8th Root Army basically tricked the Japanese into thinking they were this entire mass of troops. And so they spread out on a mountain and they fought valiantly as the 8th Root Army, Army could make its escape. Before they were captured... All five of them flung themselves off the side of Longyao Mountain so that they, they would not give any information to, to the Japanese. And that was made into a movie in 1958. It's become just one of the pieces of the revolutionary history, especially the, the revolutionary history during the Sino-Japanese War, which is now being uh, uh, is coming to the fore again right. um, over the past couple of years. So knowing exactly what they're doing, Yan Hong Chun Cho publishes an article saying, you know what? A lot of the de- details about this story aren't aren't quite right. If you look at eyewitness testimony, these stories don't match up. Blah 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 blah. Um, a couple days later, two prominent uh, neo Maoists um, uh, go to Weibo, back when Weibo was a thing, and uh, they say essentially uh, they call them SOBs, and they in one of them, uh, Guo Songmin, who's an ex Air Force captain, who's a Utopia guy, uh, calls him a historical nihilist. It, actually, he says. Fight historical nihilism. He doesn't say he doesn't who even was. Address it directly to to the. And in something that so was really a, a, a good case for 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 libel, but, right. right? And and it's something that really surprised me for Yan Hong Chuncho. Um, their lawyer dispatched a letter to uh, Mei Xinyu and, and Guo Songmin. These two guys had written these Weibo posts, suing them um, on behalf of the author of the article and the editor of the article at Yan Hong Chuncho, suing them for libel. And forget about the details of the court case, which dragged on for a year and a half. Um, This became a cause celeb within the the. I mean, this was this was great, right? It was it was the it was the right, including Yang Jisheng, who'd written this book slandering Mao by saying forty million people had died in the Great Leap Forward against the left, who were fighting to to preserve the memory of the martyrs who'd fought for for communism and for and for the great Chinese nation, battling each other in the Beijing courts. And what everyone wanted to know is how the heck is the court going to rule? Because what they're ruling on is the revolution, who, who has the right to speak about history, what is historical nihilism. Um, so the, we know there's going to be a verdict in December of last year. Everyone can feel it. There's strategy sessions going on. There's, so we get to there's, the, there's forums. Well, but right before the, right before the announcement comes on, on the case, two of the sons of, of the five martyrs then sue Yan Huang Chuncho for slandering their father. Um, so finally, uh, uh, end of December, verdict comes out in favor of 
uh, Guo Songmin and Mei Xinyu, who who had had called these two guys historical nihilists. That's and the good. court document yeah. says that Yen Hong Chuncho had, I forget the exact wording, but something like violated the the historical memory of of the Chinese people, something to that effect. Um, but it weighed in on it. Um, and then uh, there's been a countersuit, and today it just came out that Guo uh, Songmin won again after this uh, this appeal by uh, Yen Huang Chuncho. Um, but what was interesting for me um, is just this this shows how uh, history, more so than even the United States, is the is the battleground for a proxy war. Right, right, and right. that when you're talking what's, about what's the, a good analogy from American history? I mean, what, what, it would say the same okay, as the, the, saying the, Paul Revere never did say the British are coming, or you know, I mean, what what? Yeah, the, the only one I can I can I, I use often is if you remember in 2003 2004 a book came out saying that Thomas Jefferson had fathered a child with, with Sally, Sally Hemings, Hemings yeah. and the right in America went apoplectic. Yeah. Um, and to some extent, it, 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 the details didn't matter. Was in if you there. slander Thomas Jefferson, the founding father, you slander America. If you slander America, you slander us. Um, Good. And so it's not a perfect analogy, but I think it, you can see some of the intuition about why the neo-Maoists are so dead set on on saying this is ground you cannot come. We don't want we don't want roving independent historians poking details in our revolutionary This is narrative. a holy, holy story. You, and they're actually you called holy it. sites when yeah. you right, go right, to these. They are. Shang-Di. Yeah. They use Shang-Di. Yeah. Um, so, so, so um, I, I, I guess I want to turn quickly to Jeremy and ask you, what, I mean, so we talked about now this, the legacy of Mao is a, a serious double-edged sword that the, the, the party is is obliged now to, to, to carry before it. Jeremy, how does this play out? <laughs> I mean, how dangerous? No, seriously, I mean, what happens to the legacy of Mao? I mean, can we bury Mao? I don't think it's possible to bury Mao uh, in, in, is it? I mean, he's on the money. He's on uh, in the middle of Tiananmen Square. He's on Tiananmen itself. Uh, how can you uh, do away with any of that without destroying any of the, the mythology of the party? Uh, I mean, w- wouldn't you agree, Jude? I mean, th- th- this is the, the trap that the party finds itself in, is that you, what, what can you do with Mao? Nothing. Yeah, the... the- you know, and then you're forever obliged to defend. Yeah, my line so on Mao is he is both the most important figure and the most dangerous figure to the CCP. He's the most important figure because, especially as we're seeing economic growth rates decline and it's it's returning back to this, you know, the Yenon spirit. It's time during the the, the Sino-Japanese War. Um, Mao is uh, still the the turf upon which it's planted. It's le- I'm mixing metaphors here, but it's legitimacy stake. I mean, he is these single most important historical figure of the past century to the CCP. Um, on the other hand, if you take Maoism seriously, if you really look at Maoism, it's the opposite of Wei Wen. It's, it's storm the barricades. It's permanent revolution. It's uh, uh, making sure there's no restoration of capitalism. Um, it's the spirit of the cultural revolution. It's the Dadzabao. It's all these things. So what the CCP is trying to do is this Goldilocks uh, fence walking, knife's edge wow, of three metaphors. Of, of just enough Maoism to keep the whole thing running, but not too much Maoism or not independent Maoism. And that's one of the reasons, just as a, that I think we're going to see more Maoism because one of the ways you shut off so uh, not, independent not, narratives, not Mao more than ever, but more Mao than more ever. Mao than ever, right. is you flood you flood the conversation with your Mao. And that's what's been happening even just this week, hasn't it, with um, uh, w- what was going on with uh, Xi Jinping? Uh, yeah, so it was an old report, an mm. old work report of mm. Mao's that has now been, all the party cadres have been told they need, they need to study it. Um, you know, on the, on the 120th anniversary of, of Mao's uh, birth uh, in 2013, they put a 100-episode 
uh, serialization of his life on CCTV. Mm. Um, you know, I think um, if you leave Mao to his own devices, it festers like a sore. So you need to flood the airwaves with your Mao and make sure that that's the Mao that we're we're all uh, paying attention to. Then Mao the nationalist, not Mao the radical. Fascinating, fascinating. And we look forward to reading your book, absolutely, and uh, to having you back on the show. Thank you. talk about this and other things. Uh, Jeremy, it's time to move to recommendations. Sure. I, I've got one that's very relevant to the theme uh, oh, good, good. Uh, of uh, our podcast today, which is something, uh, um, uh, uh, full disclosure, I published on Dunway.com a few years ago by Robert Foyle Hunwick, which was an interview with... Um, Fan Jingang. F- yeah, the, yeah, one of the Utopia uh, bookstore and website founders. And this was shortly after the website had been shattered after the fall of Borsi Lai. And it's, it's quite an interesting little mm. interview. Mm-hmm. So Robert Hoyle Hunwick's interview with Fan Jingong. Okay. That's right. Uh, excellent, excellent. Jude, what do you have for us this week? Um, I've got a, a great book by one of my favorite uh, historians of modern China, Maurice Meisner. Of Wisconsin. Uh, of Wisconsin, yes. uh, M-E-I-S-N-E-R, and it's called The Deng Xiaoping Era, An Enquiry into the Fate of Socialism. That from a, a fairly hardcore left position looks at what Deng hath wrought during the late 70s, early 80s, and up to his death. It's wow. a beautifully written book. Uh, Is Meister still alive? No, he's no, dead. He, he passed. But, he's, okay. but that and his, his general history of... Mao's China and after. ...are, are just w- some Absolutely. of the best written, uh, enjoyable uh, work on China. Beautiful, beautiful. I mean, I, I, that was my, my undergraduate textbook um, on, on, on Mao, is Mao's China, and then Mao's China and after I, I read again in grad school. Great recommendations, yeah. I mean, I think Meisner is, is under-read these days. That's really unfortunate. Uh, my recommendation actually comes from you, Jude. Um, you you uh, you flashed a book at me that I immediately rushed out and, and bought on Kindle and started reading uh, by Lyle J. Goldman, uh, Goldstein, rather. I'm sorry. Uh, Meeting China. Goldstein halfway. Goldman. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know what? Just just to prevent the 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 the. the the charge of anti-Semitism. I'm going to re-record that line. Uh, okay, laugh away. Yeah. Um, I had so much trouble remembering his name, though. Seriously, I had a lot of trouble remembering. Goldstein. <laughs> Gold. <Right>. Goldberg. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so Lyle J. Goldstein, uh, Meeting China Halfway, which is, uh, so he teaches at the uh, Naval War College, um, and he's written pieces where from which I concluded that he was quite a hawk. Uh, and if you read this book, at least as I've read it so far, uh, it's it's really, really kind of shocking. The, uh, you know, the, his, his, his prescriptions for the avoidance of the Thucydides trap uh, really kind of bringing back spheres of influence, granting China significant spheres of influence, you know, in, in the East China Sea, uh, pulling back on, on close surveillance, on, 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 uh, you know, EP3s and, and, and that sort of thing. And then uh, engaging China in what he calls sort of um, spirals of, 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 oh gosh, I'm, I'm not going to remember it. And I'm, I'm only, uh, you know, 20, 30 pages in, but it's already fascinating. And uh, I'm hoping that I'm, I'm recommending something that is going to, you know, stay this sane through to the end that he doesn't end up pulling in something completely batshit crazy and indefensible because I have not read the, the whole book yet, but uh, I, I'm going to provisionally recommend it. And I uh, hope, Professor Goldstein, if you're listening, that first of all, you uh, accept my humblest apology for mispronouncing your name. I am not, I assure you. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and also that, that you know, you'll reach out, and I would love to have you on the show to talk about this. And so thanks, Jude. Jude, thanks. And it's great to have you back in Beijing, and uh, we look forward to hanging out a lot. Thank you very much. Jeremy, man. Yeah, thanks, Jude. Thanks, Kaiser. 
All right, and uh, take care. We will see you next week on the Cynical Podcast. Bye-bye.